Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have Scott Goodson here with me in New York. Welcome to my podcast, Scott. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's so lovely to be here. And we have the best view. You have an office on the 48th floor in the Empire State Building. It's just gorgeous. The view is fantastic. Yeah, today's a bit hazy, but uh, you get a great sort of uh, perspective on life. You can see the small buildings and the tall buildings. You can see the new buildings and the old buildings. So in a way, you get a sense of the future and the history right in front of you. So for those of you uh, who don't know of Scott uh, Goodson, he is the author of Uprising, uh, How to Build a Brand and Change the World by Sparking Cultural Movements. He founded Strawberry Frog about 20 years ago and brought movement marketing to the world. And uh, his groundbreaking ideas and agency quickly gained the attention of the marketing world with award-winning movement campaigns and also innovative communications for some of the world's most iconic global brands. For example, Emirates, Airline, Google, Procter & Gamble, Tesla, SunTrust Bank, LG, Heineken, Jim Beam, and Mahindra. Uh, that's a, an impressive list. But you are in this um, movement's marketing since almost two decades. But nowadays, it feels like more and more people than ever has the need to kind of belong to something bigger than themselves. Do you have like an example of a, of a great movement happening or about to happen today? I think there's a huge movement in the world for equality, true equality and inclusiveness. So to me, that is like, a, it's kind of breaking down the old world order, the old patriarchy, the sort of the establishment of um, men, and the conservative way of how society should be, to me, is breaking down. That, to me, is the biggest movement that's shape, reshaping our societies and, and businesses and, and the customer and the consumer. To me, that's like the fundamental biggest, biggest shift that's going on globally, even in the United States. I know we have a president here. You may not see that, but even in the United States, there's still a strong movement towards uh, equality and inclusiveness. And that's across all generations. Yeah, I think it's across all generations, uh, particularly, of course, among the new generation. Uh, but it's always been there. So I think uh, people are sort of re recognizing that it's an idea that whose time has come and everyone, all generations align with that. And I think also all levels of society. So, you know, there were there was a lot of in the United States, there were people who voted against Hillary and voted for Donald Trump to a lot of people's surprise, but you know, for their reasons, people had, and, and I, I think you can relate to some of the reasons why people do vote. People were fearful of their losing their jobs. People are fearful of losing their stability and, and insecurities that come with globalization and things like that. But I think um, even among, you know, women living in, in the Southern states in the, in the United States, that tends to be pro uh, Republican, even there, you're starting to see signs of uh, desire for equality and inclusiveness, even among those voters. So I, so I definitely think it's a pervasive movement that's reshaping our society. And you wrote somewhere, I read that uh, movement is a brand's best friend. 
because you can then really engage employees and customers and, and activate them mm-hmm. and, and not kind of broadcast to them, of course. But what do you think sparks movements? What sparks movements is uh, authentic ideas that people really care about. So you mentioned a couple of things in that last comment. The first was how you engage people, employees. And the second was how would you as a business or a brand or organization connect with customers or consumers? So if we start with the first idea, you know, in 2018, with the new generation of employees, they don't like to be told what to do and they don't respond very well. So mandated change is very difficult to implement inside a company. Younger people would most likely say, I'm not going to work at that big traditional company. I'll go work at Google or I'll go work at disruptive companies that are reshaping every sector. And so every sector today have super cool, you know, startups and disruptive businesses. In many sectors that for years it was unmovable, but now they're being disrupted. Finance, very traditional, insurance, uh, retail, of course. I mean, everything is completely turned upside down. So if you want to keep your employees and you want to hire the best talent, you need to be able to engage them in a meaningful way. So movement is more powerful inside of an organization than a mandate. Movements allow you to engage your employees with that creates conviction and passion and creativity and their engagement rather than telling them to do this and they just follow your orders. That just doesn't work anymore. So movements do reshape organizations better. And then externally, if you think about how you engage with your um, consumer or your customer, it's much better to, first of all, identify an idea that they're passionate about. So it's less about, you know, you mentioned before this podcast that you had previously worked in the finance uh, sector. And, uh, you know, it's much less interesting for someone to talk about a credit card or a savings account than it is to talk about what their issues are. Like, for example, insecurity they feel because they can't put $2,000 together in an emergency in a month. And many people today in the United States, and I'm sure in other countries, have a difficulty putting together $2,000 in an emergency. But with the right financial literacy, with the right understanding of how you budget, you can actually find solutions to that type of a problem within your own paycheck rather than trying to win the lottery, right? So that basic understanding, those types of ideas are the kind of ideas that are important and relevant and what people want to be, uh, want to listen to and, and learn from than a bank just trying to sell them another product, right? That's what all the banks try to do. The one that stands out is the one that's able to have a conversation about what's important in, their, in the customer's lives. So that's where a movement becomes much more relevant because if a movement can help improve financial literacy and give you a sense of stability and confidence, then you're more likely to want to work with that bank than the fact that they have a shiny credit card. What kind of disruption do you kind of foresee for that sector? Every day, the fintech sector is developing new ways for customers to buy financial products that didn't exist a few years ago. So in the United States, we have something called Rocket Mortgage, where you can get your mortgage in two seconds. You know, you just go online and boom, you can get a mortgage. And people that want to buy a house want to get a mortgage approved fast. 
So traditional banks take time because they are risk adverse and they don't give you a mortgage like a rocket. They give you a mortgage more like a golf game. It takes 18 holes before you're given the mortgage. There will be disruptive technologies and services for all different types of needs, states. So understanding your customers will be really critical. And movement really focuses on empathy rather than on product. So you start from a position of empathy. What is in the mind of the consumer? So the, on a meta level, it moves you from focusing on the products to focusing on what's important in your customers' lives. What's important, well, first of all, from a very basic level, from product to customer, so customer centricity, which to many financial institutions is a new concept. We don't just have to talk about finance, but, but in many industries, it starts with, here's a product, how do we find a creative way to kind of advertise? And it's not about that anymore because advertising has become obsolete. You know, people don't even notice it. You know, in the old days, people used to talk about ads they love. People rare, seldom talk about ads they love anymore. It doesn't seem to even cross their radar. I think their attention spans are very short. So being able to engage those people, whether they're financial customers or they're all customers, is very difficult. So finance is being disrupted through technology, every sector is being disrupted through technology, and the brands that are able to build vibrant communities that are passionate about what the brand also stands for is gonna keep them longer, get them to buy new things. So uh, I was uh, the other day meeting up with Seth Godin, and he of course talks about you know the importance of tribes and communities and everything that you've built uh, long-term, uh, the importance of it. But I was also reflecting on the fact that the beautiful thing about the movements are also that companies can actually do it all. I mean, they can, they can sell, they can change the world, they can activate uh, people, as you say, and they can motivate this kind of engagement and so on. So knowing that, I'm thinking, why don't more companies actually do that? Well, it, first of all, it's the antithesis of a, of a corporate culture. So most corporations are focused on operative excellence and efficiency. And uh, they're rewarded for that. They're seldom rewarded for playing a nobler role in society, right? Which is unfortunate because it's in the best interests of society and of the corporation to actually improve the quality of life of people. Because if you do, they live longer and they buy more stuff. So in theory, the better the environment or the world is for your customer, the longer they live and the more they buy from you, right? They have fewer children. They live in they have a better education, better income, they, the environment isn't polluted, they live longer, and therefore they buy more stuff. So it, it makes sense that you want your customers to actually thrive. So the movement idea is really about trying to find a power, a force that exists out there that is a force for good, that can change the world for the better, that people can get aligned with, because I think all people want to be part of that kind of, a, of experience. And if the organization can use a framework that allows them to be able to deliver excellence and efficiency, as well as growth and reduce their costs when it comes to marketing, then I think they will turn to movements because movements make tremendous success when it comes to marketing. I mean, the cases that you talked about, these are huge companies that we've worked with that you know have succeeded in building huge movements and grown their business and transformed their business. Um, I mean, Jim Beam, for example, 
was a brand that you know had very traditional, very conservative bourbon position in the marketplace, and we really broke down all the barriers. And I mean, if you think about you know the message I gave you at the beginning about this big movement of equality and inclusiveness, and you know challenging the patriarchy. That was what we did with Jim Beam. So if you look at the global advertising today from Beam, the star of all the advertising is Mila Kunis. And Mila Kunis we chose because she represented this new dynamic, the woman who was empowered and she has a very strong attitude, a very strong point of view, and she's globally recognized. And you know, this is an old fashioned bourbon. They had Kid Rock as their spokesperson for many years. So it was a pretty big leap to take this traditional closed conservative brand and break it open and make it all about inclusiveness and, and this new sort of generation with a spokesperson who crystallized that movement, which was Mila Kunis. And as a result, the business just exploded. I mean, it just grew extraordinarily uh, large, not just in the United States, but in places where you wouldn't expect that, like Japan and Germany and Australia. So. But what was the biggest challenge when doing that, kind of convincing them or making them understand why they should take that leap? All the companies that I work with, for the most part, are looking to transform. So they're part of the existing economy. They're not startups, for the most part. And if you look at the US economy, the huge majority of the economy is made up of companies that have been around for many years. And they make all sorts of products. But if you're working in that company today, you're kind of going like, this company's kind of old. And the products that I'm working on, they were engineered in the 1950s. And there's this really shiny little object over there and it's called Spotify. Or there's another shiny object over there called Tesla. And that's much sexier for a 25-year-old Harvard grad. You know, where do, where do all the smartest grads want to go work? Do they want to work at you know, 3M or Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer? Or do they want to work at some other type of business. And I think the challenge for these big companies is how do you transform you know, fast enough so that you don't lose this whole generation of brilliant minds that are going to go to the, these new dynamic firms. So transformation is really what we do and the key to a lot of these companies' future. I mean, they really need to transform, not just within the organization. They, they do need a cultural transformation inside, but they also need to transform the way they engage their customers because the customer is different. You know, the customer is now, I mean, think about it. In the United States, 80% of all purchases are done by moms. Mothers have a huge impact on consumption in America. The average age of the American mom is 26. I mean, what does she do on a daily basis? She's not watching television. She's probably on YouTube or on Google. So how do you engage that person? You know, just think about it. Like, how does she interact with her friends and her and where does she get her uh, messages from? You know, her sales messages. It's everything is completely changing. So at the same time, you know, young twenty-six-year-old women are very passionate about subjects, particularly their children, their family, and so they want to be aligned with brands and with people who stand for what they believe in. So it's about values. Like you need to have clear values. We stand for these values. And then secondly, you can't pretend you're an ostrich and just hide in the ground and expect to be relevant as a company and be relevant to that mother. 
with just sticking your head in the ground. It's not going to happen. You're going to become, you know, irrelevant in a world that's moving very quickly. You know, so you need to engage, and you, you know, companies will make mistakes, but you need to be able to admit those mistakes, fix it, and move on. Companies that don't do that are going to be. You can't hide from these issues. I know that you started your career in in, uh, in Sweden uh, way back. Why was that? How how did that start influence you? So the Swedish experience was fascinating. I mean, I I grew up in Canada, and I moved to Sweden in the 1980s, mid 80s. And uh, my first client was Bjorn Borg that I worked on. He was um, just launching his fashion line, so I was very fortunate to work. There was an agency at the time called Schuldebrand and Schuldebrand, which was a very respected firm in Sweden. And I worked there as a copywriter, and I worked on that piece of business. And um, what I was amazed right from the beginning was the Swedes have no limitations. They're global citizens, and when they think about the potential of their company, they think globally. Like they don't think in terms of the United States borders, or they don't think in terms of Europe. They don't think in terms of Scandinavia versus like I remember being in meetings with Danish companies and Danish companies were like, well, we're focused on Denmark because they, they couldn't think beyond Denmark. But the Swedes were always like global in the way they saw it. Right from the beginning, I thought that was fantastic because I came, as I mentioned, from Canada and Canadians tend to think very much their limitations are Canada and maybe at the best the United States. But they don't think in the same way that the Swedes do. So that type of perspective was just super fascinating to me. And then the second thing that was amazing uh, was that obviously it was a very progressive society. So customers in Sweden at the time were like Northern European consumers, very progressive. They wanted much more of their um, brands than, let's say, American consumers. So therefore, brands started to talk a lot about purpose. You know, we need to develop a purpose strategy, and and that was new to me because you know I came from Canada and you know creative advertising was really the thing that made it seem fun and, and a sector that I found fascinating in creative marketing, and but then you had that dimension of purpose, like you know the Swedes were we've got to make the world a better place. We can't just sell more stuff. That way of thinking was a complete eye opener uh, for me. And uh, and it made a lot of sense. And you know, I worked when I lived in Sweden and, and in Europe. I worked with IKEA. I worked with a lot of Swedish clients that had a strong sense of purpose. And it really was fascinating to see how people engaged with that purpose much deeper than just a cool product. So IKEA, for example, was almost like a cult. I mean, now it's a it's lost a little of that. Power, but back in the 80s and 90s, IKEA was like, my God, it was like a religion. You know, people were passionate. I mean, I remember working with the brand in Amsterdam, and they they had a huge, the biggest store I think on the planet was in Amsterdam, and we did a whole movement for them, and people would come for miles for these events that we would hold. It was amazing. I mean, you couldn't get people to drive 10 miles to a store today. <laughs> it would be impossible. So Sweden, th- those really left me with a great sort of hunger to start my own firm that was based on purpose and based on unlimited global market. And when I started Strawberry Frog in Amsterdam, that was the objective. 
But how come it was Sweden of all countries at that time? Well, I went to Sweden originally because I was a love refugee. My wife is Swedish, so I, okay. I went there because of her and stayed because I was given the, this opportunity to work. Mm -hmm. So that was really it. And, and I had no idea what to expect in Sweden. I thought I would be there for maybe six months or a year, and I ended up living in Stockholm for 10 years. Do you speak and any Swedish? I speak Swedish. Yeah, I'm fluent in my Swedish. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I have two half-Swedish children, so, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of Swedish friends. So mm -hmm. still very much a part of my experience and my personality, I think, has still got a lot of Swedish in it. Good. So um, I'm thinking about the, if we call it the agency, you know, industry as, as such today. How would you like to see it develop further and then perhaps also challenge itself? So I don't see us as being part of the agency world. And while we use some of the tools of creative communications, we don't like to think of ourselves as an advertising agency because, as I mentioned at the beginning, advertising is obsolete. So it really needs a different way of thinking and it needs to, what we're driving is this absolutely critical need to build the strategy from empathy and from the culture back to the brand rather than from the brand to society. So that's the proprietary process that we use here and that to me is the key. So when I see a, a really creative television commercial, the question I ask myself is, okay, it's very creative, but so are all these other creative commercials. You know. What am I left with as a viewer? Like, have you moved me to want to engage with that brand? You know, I mean, I, yes, the car looks super fast and looks really cool, but when push comes to shove, you have so many dimensions to decisions with automotive today, for example. I just use automotive because there are a lot of automotive ads. You know, do I buy this new sexy sport car? Do I buy the hybrid? Do I buy the electric car? You know, what's the right way to go? You know, those are the kind of questions that are popping up into people's minds. So if you're not being able to have a much bigger idea than just a fast new car or a car that has a new, you know, has apps on the dashboard, I think it's a lost opportunity to build a deeper, meaningful relationship with those people that are watching your paid advertising. Yeah, so true. I have at home to... Uh crazy guys who are in love with the supercars and cars and so on. And for them, it's enough with a tiny little update and they go crazy. But that's a very kind of, uh, you know, super passionate people that, you know, bother about these small things. But on average, I, I agree totally. I mean, I think it needs to be a, a bigger... You can have both. You can certainly talk about the sexy features, the shiny objects. That's fine. But in addition to that, right, because going back to what I said earlier, marketing today is not just about paid advertising. It's also PR, it's also social media. So in addition to those cool features, if you're the CEO of a company, what are you gonna talk about in your next speech? Once you've talked about the feature, what other aspect of your of the world can you talk about? To me, that's a bigger question. What can the employees talk about? And why are you building those sexy features? To what end? Exactly, but going back to you, what would you say is your passion from the beginning? The passion has always been around trying to drive positive change. That to me is the thing that I find the most fascinating and to do it through the relationships and the partnerships that I have with companies, that's the greatest thrill. So an organization, like I worked for many years with Mahindra in India, it's a, one of the most powerful companies in India. They, they're a huge automotive manufacturer, 
They're the first company to build a car factory in Detroit in 25 years. Fascinating company. And the head of that company, Anand Mahindra, fundamentally believes in driving positive change. It's absolutely mind-blowing and exciting to work with that organization. Uh, the leadership are 100% behind that. Same is true for, in the United States, SunTrust Bank is a client that we work with. The leadership from the CEO throughout the um, executive committee and all the employees are really passionate about being a purpose-based organization. We create a movement together with their leadership, which we launched on the Super Bowl in 2016. Today, it has three and a half million participants in the movement, which is unbelievable for a bank. Wow. And we're not talking about a uh, brand of, of health food, it's a bank. And you know, it's fascinating to see how motivated people are when you get that kind of uh, a story. So these organizations are, it's so thrilling to work with people that fundamentally want to do something positive and constructive. So that's what drives me. I get super passionate about that. And, and um, he's not the exception to the rule. There's a lot of companies in, in maybe India that you've discovered that have that kind of feel of wanting to do good with their business as an instrument, right? I mean, there are, like everywhere, you have companies that are um, greenwashing, right? So they say they want to do it, but they don't really do it. And then you have real change and real, you know, people that want to drive change. So it's a lot easier to say you want to do it than actually do it. But yes, I think it's very, um, uh, it's the frog. <laughs> in the background there. It, 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 there is a frog there? Yeah, yeah, there's frogs in there. Really? Yeah. Gosh. I actually wanted to ask you the reason for the name Strawberry Frog as well. I forgot that. Uh, well, the name Strawberry Frog comes from when we started almost 20 years ago. It was uh, to be the small rebel challenger brand against the big dinosaur marketing agencies. So they have these big corporate firms, and then you have Strawberry Frog is the challenger. And, and there is actually a, a frog in the Amazon called the Strawberry Frog. It's actually called Dendobates Pomelia, which is the Latin firm. It's called Strawberry Poison Dart Frog, but we just shortened it to Strawberry Frog. And uh, it is a red frog with blue legs, so it felt like a rebel with jeans. So it was the perfect icon for our company. But it's really what we stand for, which is being a challenger, doing more with less, being agile. Today, you need, you need to be able to move quick and you need to be able to you know, leap. And if you make a mistake, change it in midair. So all the, all the sort of the flexibility and the dynamism of a frog is what we kind of have as our culture. But how are you and the agency as such also then adapting and, and you know, remaining agile and super relevant? I mean, the way you stay agile and super relevant is by sticking to your values. So our values here are all about openness and, and about, like I said, flexibility and doing more with less. I mean, that's where the world's moving towards. In terms of you know, how we bring the strategies to life, we've always been, from the beginning, very much focused on innovations. So while we do a lot of films and we do a lot of, we buy advertising you know, to get messages out, we do a lot of unconventional media as well. And things tend to come back and go out of fashion and they come back in fashion. Outdoor advertising 
was out of fashion for a long time. Now it's becoming back in fashion and experiential marketing was out of fashion. Now it's coming back in fashion. TV advertising was out of fashion. Now it's coming back in fashion. So, you know, it's a very strange time. Things kind of go in, you know, in waves. You know, everybody wanted to leave the advertising world to go work at Facebook. Now everybody wants to leave Facebook, come back to the advertising world. So it's like, I think the way you, be, you remain relevant is by leaning into issues that are relevant. So when we talk to our clients, we talk to them about real genuine issues and opportunities for them to connect their business. So when I said at the beginning, there's an opportunity for brands to connect over equality and inclusiveness, that's relevant. That's how we remain relevant. It's not about magic. It's about being genuine and not bullshit. That's what the advertising industry used to be about. It was all about greenwashing and bullshit. Now it's about authenticity, transparency, and relevance. And that's how we remain relevant, is just to talk about contextual issues that are relevant to people in society. Not everybody is prepared to align to that. Some people are still reluctant to do that and prefer to hide behind greenwashing. But in my opinion, that's not a long-term strategy because today everything comes out. You can't hide anything anymore. So you know, you, you play with the cards you're dealt. You can't obfuscate the reality of the business that you have. You just have to find an interesting and more amazing way to make it relevant. I, I totally 100% share your, your view on all these things. And I've seen very often that it tends to happen more likely in entrepreneurial-led companies where there is from the beginning a strong idea or a yeah. passion behind or a conviction behind the founder or the founders or so. It's easier for them to kind of convey what they stand for, what is negotiable for them, and then transfer this emotion to others, clients and internally, and maybe less so in, in the corporate uh, bigger structures. But most of your clients are in the corporate. It depends on the people. I mean, we worked for many years with Pampers globally. And that's a Procter & Gamble. You can't get more corporate than that. And uh, I think um, there's here the, in the there's background, a, there's, there's a frog, there's a frog. singing. He's, he's so happy you're here. So he's, you hear him singing in the background. It's a, it's a good wavelength. So we worked with Procter & Gamble, and it's corporate. But as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's a corporation, but it's still individuals make it in a difference. And individuals, I was very fortunate because I was brought in to Procter & Gamble by a man named Jim Stengel, who wrote a book called Grow that's all about purpose branding. And he's a big believer in the role of purpose in helping companies grow. So movement, the way I define movement is kind of the evolution of purpose. Purpose was relevant in the 90s. I agree with Jim Stengel that purpose is still relevant, but I feel that it tends to be a little theoretical. So in my, the way I think of movements is, a, is an idea that is very similar to purpose, but it is so simple and motivating both to the employee and the consumer that it's the same idea. You don't need one purpose for the employee and then an advertising campaign for the consumer. You should have one movement idea for both. And it just simplifies the message inside the firm and outside the firm. So he was very instrumental and some other people that I worked with at Procter & Gamble who were really game changers, really big thinkers. They've moved on outside of Procter since then, but several of them, but they, they're really brilliant-minded, um, they were brilliant-minded marketers. Actually, all of them that I was working with have left. Now one of them is the CMO of Hertz, which is a car rental company. 
Another one is running, was the head of uh, YouTube. Another one left to run another corporation. So, so they've demonstrated that their leadership is still valid in, in the economy. How different is it to work in, um, in the markets like Dubai, for example, and so on? What's your, your experience there? So working with Emirates Airlines was a fantastic experience. And since Emirates, we continue to work in the UAE and beyond in the Middle East. So the leadership of Emirates is fascinating because they, they hated the word brand. We're not a brand. They, don't, they didn't like to be referred to as brand. So when I met them and talked about movements, they were like, that's what we need. Because we have a huge business challenge. Our challenge is we have a fast-growing airline that has a technological advantage, which is they acquired a lot of these Airbus A380s. They have the largest concentration of Airbuses of any airline on the planet. So they, that technological edge allowed them to really almost make Europe irrelevant to some extent in terms of a stopover for countries like South America and the US and Canada having to travel to, to Dubai or India. You didn't need anymore to travel through London. You know, a 747 aircraft forced you because of its range to travel you know, to London and then stop in Heathrow and ship and change. With the new Airbus A380, it's one plane, boom, you're there. And it cuts down the time, it's more comfortable. So they had a technological advantage. And they were smart enough to know that this technology was gonna change the world. So they were the first in to invest in those new aircraft. And uh, so they knew, they had a plan for growth. The brand was very regional. It was an exclusive Arabic airline with a big Arabic lettering on the tail. So it was, a, from a marketer's perspective, a quite a challenge to think about how you bring that to the world, or how, how you actually make it accessible to a new uh, customer base. So the whole idea of movements was really relevant for them because the movement had to solve two big challenges. The first was the employees were being hired from all over the planet because obviously Dubai is a small country or city-state, I should say, within the UAE. So they had to apply, you know, 7,000 new pilots they had to hire from outside of the UAE. Plus for every two pilots are 35 crew members. So they had to hire hundreds and thousands of people from all over the world, China and, and Serbia and Sweden and every country you've ever lived in, <laughs> they've hired from. So how do you bring these people together and have one focus when they're working for an Arab airline? So we, the movement that we came up with was this idea that our movement was to make the world a smaller place. If we make the world a smaller place, we, we reduce misunderstandings and misconceptions between people. And that's what Hello Tomorrow is, is the movement to make the world a smaller place. And it worked for them because it wasn't just brand, which they didn't want. And it solved their business problem, which was, what do we talk to our employees about? Why should they care? And what, how do we engage our consumer? who you know, has a choice. And so the movement was very passionate and very much successful, but it wasn't about trying to make Dubai the coolest or the number one. We never talked about Dubai. It was about embracing the world. And that's how Dubai became loved and admired. So the movement to make the world smaller, really, if you saw the work that we did, was primarily about showcasing people of different cultures coming together. That's the role of Emirates, to bring all these people together. And that made the brand loved, not just in the, in the Arabic world, but globally. And just to answer your question, I mean, working in, in Dubai, and, and since then I've worked on a lot of brands from the region, leaders there are wonderful. Like the management are incredibly smart. They're very worldly. 
Um, they're generous and uh, as someone to work with, they're very engaging and, and they, they want to do really meaningful work. They, they do believe also in the idea to try to make an impact on the world. You don't realize that, you know, places like Abu Dhabi, they have a company there which we worked with last year called Mubadala. It's a huge um, investment company that is, has a stake in all sorts of companies around the world in many, many countries. And their role, they, they do fundamentally believe they want to make the world a better place. So the, the businesses that I've worked on there, the movement framework worked very well with them. And um, in terms of, of, of you, what kind of transformational points um, in your life have influenced you the most so far? I mean, I think having survived to be 50 years old, you know, you go through transformational moments. I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a curious individual, so I'm always fascinated by what happens out there. So I'm interested. I haven't turned off. And, you know, we are living through transformational times. So keeping up with what's going on and, and being passionate about a number of key issues enables me to have gone through that transformation. So here, for example, we have like 67% of our management are women. You know, in the United States, it's unheard of. We have uh, employees here who, you know, you talk about the role of women in, in business in the United States. Like, you know, women should be in management. You know, that's what people say. But yet you see so few women in management. The reason they're not in management is because there's a direct conflict between a woman, her desire to be a professional, and her ability to maintain that and be a mother. So the decision is always around, do I stay in my position or do I leave to become a mother? And that is the wrong paradigm. It should be, of course, both. But that system and structure doesn't exist here. So we, one of the women on our management team had a second child and she got five months maternity leave. Now in the United States, that's unheard of. In New York State, the amount of maternity leave is six weeks. So five months is pretty out there. But, it, you know, principles don't mean anything unless it costs you money. And it's fundamentally smarter for us to have our leadership having that opportunity. Because we keep our talent, they help build a strong culture in the firm, and it makes a big difference. They're passionate about this organization in ways that regular employees wouldn't, would never be. Those, for me, are transformational experiences where you actually take your values and you put them into practice and you actually see how a company can actually thrive as a result of that. And then other transformational moments in my life have been traveling. So, you know, I lived in Sweden. I moved to Sweden for the weekend and ended up staying 10 years. I then moved to Amsterdam. I lived in Amsterdam for seven years. I opened up offices in Brazil, Dubai, Singapore, Mumbai, Amsterdam, of course, and New York City. So I've traveled a lot in my life and I've worked with all sorts of amazing people, which was transformational. I live in New York City now for, I can't remember, 13 years, 14 years. Um, so I've, I've really had the opportunity to kind of transform myself, but at the same time, stick to my values. That's the key. Like, know who you are, you know, what's your rock? You know, you have to figure out what's your rock, what's your, what are your values, what do you stand for, and then you can go out and do anything in life because then you know who you are. To me, that's the key. 
But it's taught me that lesson so that when I bring that up to my clients, it's based on my own personal experience. Which is something that is very easy to notice when somebody talks from, you know, conviction, experience and, and uh, radiates something totally different. I can notice it because I see you also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eventually podcasts will have like a three-dimensional yeah. size to them. Hologram yeah. podcasts. But with all your, you know, experience and, and uh, insights here, uh, what would you say overall for companies? What is the long-term solution or formula for businesses? What do you believe in? I think it's all about, you know, understanding society, understanding the shifts that are happening in society, being an anthropologist, trying to figure out, put the time in to figure out what is going on out there in culture, because that is where growth comes from. You know, yoga, when, my, when I grew up, my mother did yoga all the time. She's 89 and she's still very flexible. But when she did it, it was very weird. I think I was the only child, I was going to say on my street, but it's beyond that. It was like the only child maybe in Montreal, maybe maybe there was five who had mothers that were doing yoga, like my mother was doing yoga. Now, of course, it's everywhere. I mean, it's across, you know, in Kentucky, in Tennessee, in Ohio, in California, it's all over. And Jessica Simpson, who's this television celebrity, sells a billion dollars in fashion every year, in activewear. In other words... Everybody are wearing yoga clothes. How did that happen? Why did it happen? To me, that's a fascinating question. It's the kind of question that gets back to what I said to you before. Like, if you understand what are the changes going on there, you can find a way to build a business that's relevant to those changes. And you can lean in on those trends so that your business thrives. And if you do that well, then your business can obviously grow as those social changes come into effect. A lot of companies try to pull back at a time when they're really on trend. And they pull back and they're hesitant. And they should be doubling down at a time when, and that's because they don't understand the power of the culture and the society and their role in helping people fulfill their aspirations. You know, the minute that you start to change, you know, right now it's an interesting time in this country because there are some people who are America first, they want to keep the borders closed, they want to, but at the same time, you have a lot of people here who are completely opposite. They want to live in a bigger world. So it's a really interesting dynamic because it's not, you know, there's not only one simple story. There's always a lot of different countercultures going on. Movements are a bit like riptides. You know what a riptide is? Sometimes a riptide comes in very quietly. You don't ever see it. They can pull you and throw you out in the ocean. That's a bit like understanding what's going on in culture. So business success is is more reliant today on truly understanding the consumer and understanding the right customers you want to go after, where you need to place your bets, and just focusing all your energy on understanding the consumer culture. But if we dream a little bit and say that uh, we can assume that you have all kinds of doors open to you, all resources available you can think of, is there anything in particular that you would immediately change or innovate? The scary thing right now is, is of course, this ability, this passive personality analysis that AI can do, which is, was the fundamental theory of Cambridge Analytica, which is the ability to know a person and their personality. Before you used to do Myers-Briggs, you know, prior personality testing. Now you don't need that. Now through algorithms, you can 
look at a person's social media feed and you can know 86% accuracy whether that person is, what their sexual orientation is. Think about that, right? That's how, how accurate these algorithms are. So understanding consumers has its downside. But in terms of marketing, clearly there's a benefit to understanding behaviors, culture, through those types of, I describe it as like fresh data. Like you have real-time data from millions and millions of people. I mean, that's huge. Think about it. Like Facebook is one huge research, real-time data company and Instagram. They could tell you, can you imagine what insights they have in terms of behavior? Never existed anything on the planet anywhere near this. I mean, the best they had in the past was like the census, which was done every five years. You know? So, um, and at the same time, what we what people put up on social media is necessarily not them, because it's very curated. Maybe you know, yeah. uh, it's in terms of well, you can get a hint of maybe interests or something like that. But really, who is that person if you scan it through the social media activities? I don't know how how accurate it's eventually going to be. I mean, I think it's. That's a very fair point. I mean, the buzzword this year now is behavioral economics because they, the Nobel Prize in economics was awarded to a behavioral economist. That's also in the same vein. I mean, that's about understanding, you know, your the consumer and understanding, you know, how you frame your message or your business in relation to their needs. So that's where the industry is going. And the technology is, is there to help support that, you know. It's fascinating and it's scary, but it, but it does lead to, you know, there's some the summation I made earlier, which is that understanding the consumer, understanding the culture is the key for, for business, um, for good or for bad. And, you know, Cambridge Analytica is a great example um, because movements can be a force for good or they can be a force for evil. The way that they operated where they... And others, other players, in, at least in the U.S. in the last election, uh, they were putting up, you know, strong stands that people either aligned with or they didn't align with them. But if they aligned with them, they were super passionate about them. And they joined those points of view based on taking a stand on something. And they were able to, to sow discontent and frustration and a lot of passion by going out there and saying, you know, war veterans for you know who believe in the order of law and if you're against, do you believe in the order of law and people would say damn right and they were able to get hundreds of thousands of people to join them and in the end they were surrogates for the trump campaign so they use that power of movements in their own way so they use it a way of, of getting people to do something that's also what a movement ends up doing is it it focuses on not just influencing you, but actually action. You know, movements are, they emanate from ideas, but they're grounded in action. Like you get people to do something. That's what, you put up something that creates that passion, that stir, that motivates someone to want to get up and do something. To vote, to buy, to have a new habit. That's a new way of thinking in marketing. It's not just about influencing behavior, it's actually creating behavior. I mean, you work with a lot of um, different kinds of leaders, however you, you know, choose to define those. But is there one central kind of piece of advice that you would like to uh, share? To leaders? Mm -hmm. 
I think leadership today is about inspiring people and really engaging them in a way that is truly meaningful. And, uh, you know, the way you do that is as we've been talking. I mean, I think, you know, you can do it. You know, you as a leader can do it. It's not outside of the realm of possibility. You will be amazed how passionate your clients and customers will be if you find a way to talk to them that isn't about product. Like if you think about it, going back for a minute to what we talked about earlier about finance, you know, if you're the CEO of a finance company and you go and speak to your clients about credit or about financial products, is great. But if you ask that customer, what is it I'm most concerned about? What are, you, what are you most concerned about? And they'll tell you, well, it's probably not financial products. I mean, the ones that do, they obviously need financial products, but generally speaking, well-managed companies have strong financial balance sheets. So they're not desperate for financial aid. They're worried about their employees, the financial insecurity we talked about earlier. A lot of people in America, if I said 80% of Americans can't put $2,000 together, that means 80% of most companies' employees can't put $2,000 together. So CEOs of companies are worried about those people. And they're worried because they're worried if those people can't put money together and something happens, they're not going to stay in the company. And they're worried about their families and they're worried about the whole community of employees that are living on a razor's edge from a financial perspective. So that's one. The other thing they're worried about in, in, in the United States is there's health issues. You know, obesity is a huge issue in this country. So as a CEO, how do you connect with your employees to help solve some of these bigger issues? And as a bank or financial institution, well, you can at least help them solve one of those issues, which is the financial insecurity issue. So I just use that as an example. Imagine the discussion between the CEO of the financial company and that other company and the CEO, what kind of discussion it would be if you're a fly on the wall and you're talking about employees' financial security versus coming in with a new financial product? Which discussion do you think would be more passionate? Well, that's the basis of movement. So as a leader of a company, if you don't have that movement, if you're going in there with a one-dimensional discussion. It's boring. You know, what do you say after your third visit? You know, if you want to be an engaging CEO to your customers, to your employees, to the general population, you've got to find something to stand for. Otherwise, you're completely irrelevant. You don't exist. Very good advice. But what about giving yourself advice, let's say, 15 years ago or so? What would that be? I have no regrets, actually. Although I did the whole move backwards. I should have started in New York and then you know, moved and ended up in Sweden <laughs> instead of Sweden, Holland, United States. Because I was in Sweden you know, before I had a family and all the benefits of Sweden to family was obviously really fantastic. 15 years ago, I think I've always had a very good life balance. This is not my life. This is an aspect, this is a dimension of my life. I love to travel, I love meeting people, I love to ski, I like to do, but at the same time I love to do, write stories and work on problems and work with talented leaders. So for me it's, I don't really have anything I would go back and change. I was very fortunate over my career to work with some extraordinary people in both CEOs and CMOs and just really amazing minds 
that helped me shape the way I also think, sharpen my point of view. And I'm fortunate even today, I mean, I work with amazing people, like one of the clients I work with here in the United States, her name is Susan Johnson. She's the head of um, CMO of SunTrust. Extraordinary mind, like just amazing um, thinker and a great individual to work with. I don't think there's anything I would, I would sort of go back and transform, um, honestly. No regrets. Maybe that one year I did that, I did that postgraduate degree. I should have maybe, maybe not continued my education so much, but I think eh, that's the only thing I look back. Maybe, maybe that one, I could have, didn't, didn't need to do that, but you know. What, what did you study? When I went into university, I studied at the beginning uh, social sciences. And uh, of course, my father wanted me to study economics as any smart parent would. I'm telling my children economics, mathematics, you know, of course, they'll do whatever they want, which is totally normal and healthy. I graduated in social sciences and uh, my father had a publishing and a advertising company in Canada. And my mother was uh, the creative director of, of Canada's NCOL, you know, like you know, NK in Sweden or in the US like, um, like uh, Saks or Bloomingdale's, yeah. So she came from the fashion uh, retail side and my dad had a marketing and publishing company. So I grew up in a household with, you know, a lot of people wearing black clothing and smoking cigarettes and drinking vodka till many, you know, late hours in the morning. So when I was a kid, I didn't want to do anything in marketing. It was like the last thing I wanted to do. It was just, you know, they were lovely people and my dad's found, my dad and my mother had great friends, but I had the dreams of, you know, changing the world. I wanted to do bigger things. So when I was in university, I had this opportunity to work on a, my last year, there was a woman from Barbados who wanted to be the president of the university that I went to. And when I went to Western, which is a, it's a very large, very respected university in Canada, very conservative. When I went there, it was very conservative. All the heads of Canadian industry sent their children to this university. And uh, this friend of mine was a, a woman from um, Barbados. So she wasn't Canadian and she was from Barbados and her dad was a carpenter, I believe. And the university, of course, had never had a president like that. And she said to me, would you be my campaign manager? And I said, well, okay, you know, um, if, you, if I say jump and you say how high, I'll do it. Otherwise, I'm not going to bother. And all these Sunday night dinners from my dad and my mother came back. And uh, we were up against seven guys, you know, who were all the elite of Canada. You know, the son of the mayor of Toronto and the son of the president of 3M and all, all these top guys. And she was the only woman and she was, of course, she was black and she was from Barbados. So she had an accent. Anyway, make a long story short, she was an amazing candidate, incredibly articulate, deep, really smart individual. And we ended up winning like 68% of the vote. So I realized, wow, there's something powerful about communication here that I could make an impact in that way that I never thought was possible. So I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought that was the way to do it. But that kind of opened my eyes that, wow, you can really make an impact for good if you use the power of communication. So that was really my, that was a transformative moment for me in university. Wonderful. What do you think actually that the world needs most at this time? I think the world needs more 
positive, optimistic dreamers who stand for a better world. You know, I mean, Coke still sells $50 billion Cokes every year with hope and optimism. It's not a foreign concept. It's part of our DNA. It's what, you know, we get up in the morning. You know, life is really, really, really hard. And it's really important to remind people of hope and to give them a sense of confidence and optimism. I'm actually speaking this June in the Cannes Festival with Susan Johnson, who I mentioned earlier, and David Oyelowo, who's a, an actor in Hollywood. He played Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma. And we're talking about the strange power of confidence as our theme for that talk. And it's just about the role that leaders and authorities need to have in today's world. You know, there is less respect for leaders in our society because of the dynamic of social media. So it's a distributed power now. It used to be the editors, the actors, the government officials that were the ones that we respected the most. Now it's not, it's our friends and so forth. But I think in order to gain respect again by the editors and by the leaders and corporate leaders, you need to stand for confidence. You need to stand for optimism. You need to give people hope. And uh, to me, that is the, absolutely the key. You know, I see it with my own eyes when you go out there and you, and you remind people it's going to be okay. You can do it. You can get there. It's amazing what you can do. And that's one thing that is fascinating about living in the United States, that American brands and American companies, many of them always go back to this basic human insight of optimism and possibility, perseverance, and the ability to overcome obstacles. So like the idea of, you know, a Nike is just do it. And Coke is about optimism. I mean, these are basic, simple ideas that have created gigantic corporations. It's not a unique technology. It's just this idea of hope and, and optimism. It's fantastic. And that's what I would like to see among politicians as well, right? To see that. Exactly. Where is that kind of political leadership that we could benefit from all over the world, not just here, that can give people that? Unfortunately, we need new structures and systems. Just like the issue I talked about with women in, in America, they need new systems and structures to support women. There needs to be new systems and structures to support a positive interaction among different countries and different people from different countries. So the, the, the systems of the past are not relevant anymore. So I love the United Nations. I think it, it does play a role in solving some issues, but it has huge issues. Even people working at the United Nations have said that the UN has issues. There almost needs to be a new, and I, it's so complicated, I, I don't know how you start, but there is, again, the fundamental belief that we're all the same, we're all primates at the end of the day, we are on this little planet together. How do we you know, come together to find common ground? And, and you know, the decisions that are made in today's world are made out of fear you know, not at a positive intent. You know, all these decisions that are made, they're made out of a sense of fear and power based on fear, which is, it's not based on love. It's not based on human optimism. For me, I think it's backwards. So hopefully that we'll see some leaders coming forward that drive that forward. And I think that companies have a role in playing that in today's world. Because if you think about companies 
ha interact with people probably more than politicians do. So there's a role for them to engage and remind people that, yes, you're going to be okay. You're going to get there. And, um, you know, you need to put in the hard work. You need to dig in, but you'll get there. You're going to be all right. Like, I think it's the role of the company to, to remind people that. And they respond. And we know from research that people that are given that sense of calming, like, you're going to be fine. Even when they're stressed, they feel better, feel they can get through it. Yeah, also because it's an expression of you believe in me kind of feeling yeah. as well. You have someone alongside you, which is super powerful. And that's, in, in a sense, that's the role of communication is to create this sort of a strong sense of you're there with someone. It's almost like, uh, you know, a surrogate monkey. You know, the monkey in the cage, the baby monkey. They used to do the re research on in the 70s where you have a baby monkey and they would have a stuffed doll looked like a monkey and the baby monkey felt secure because the baby monkey would have this stuffed mother was an empty cage but there was it wasn't a live monkey but it was a the monkey felt calm and felt you know there's a lot of evidence to show that the surrogate monkey i think that's the role of communication is to play that role of almost like a surrogate monkey so we are both in the right business, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> if we want to create impact. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So thank you, Scott. You are a wonderful person. I'm so happy that uh, we, we were able to meet today. Uh, and thanks for sharing everything. Uh, and just a final question. How was it to be on the pod? It was really so enjoyable. You're a lovely interviewer. Um, and it's so lovely to have someone who's obviously lived in so many different countries, but of course comes from Sweden, or at least partially from Sweden. It's, has so many fond memories of that place. So yeah, it was really, really great. And I love the name Unplugged. You know, it's our biggest challenge to get unplugged today. It's kind of the idea of being so busy all the time and not taking time to kind of just think uh, smart. Yeah, and the other dimension of the Unplugged is, you know, this acoustic, I want to oh, kind of cool. portray, portray, yeah. portray what is really, you know, genuine. You don't need to have yeah, that's cool. uh, artificial amplifiers, ah, right? I like that. Hmm? It's good. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Scott. To find out more about Scott and his work, you can head to strawberryfrog.com, also uprisingmovements.com, and of course, follow him on social media. And I also definitely recommend that you read Scott's best-selling book, Uprising. And also that you have a podcast, right? I do have a podcast that's on iTunes. It's called Uprising. You can also find it on uh, scottgoodsonsuprising.com. Okay, great. And uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And also, I truly appreciate if you share this episode with your network and friends for impact and to all of those people that you think uh, would really benefit from hearing what Scott has been talking about today. Uh, thanks for joining uh, the Corporate Unplugged podcast today. And until next time, uh, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.